Back at it again. We are here. Back at it again with the Krispy Kremes. I feel like we haven't recorded in like four years. Dude, I literally was like, because you were on vacation. So in a weird way, I got on vacation and I just stayed here in boring Virginia. But it was nice. Like I went and I bought an air sofa, those inflatable sofas where you're supposed to run with them. But I just kind of swoosh it. That works. Up, and it works. And I just sat wherever I could sit took naps and ate snacks i ate snacks on my belly and it was the happiest moment i've been i've been happy for two weeks that is basically what i did on a ship yeah literally it's just i have been so happy for two weeks and i think it's because i bought this inflatable sofa and i've just been sitting with a snack and then falling asleep those naps will do it unfortunately when i came back from my vacation i got covid yeah but that led to some very very weird dreams so i have a dream to share on the podcast yes thomas carter rochester <laughs> stand by stand by uh it's not it's not jelly beans oh, so oh shame uh if you follow us on twitter you know that we have tickets to go see my chemical romance in August. yes so i had a dream even though the show was like pretty much sold out that they didn't have enough ticket sales in raleigh so they were moving it to a smaller venue and that smaller venue was the Academy downtown. That is just stressful. <laughs> so Why is that dream so stressful? But like they didn't tell anybody except people who lived here, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So we show up and it's literally like the Academy crowd, which for those of you who aren't from here, it's a bunch of old rich people. So they're all standing around waiting for the show to start. And Gerard <laughs> comes out on the stage, which looks it's. It's the shape and size of a glorified high school auditorium. Like in my dream, it was actually an auditor- a high school auditorium and not yeah. the academy stage. Right. And he just walks out and he's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and he would. <laughs> I would say the same. <laughs> so then like for some reason, you and I weren't paying attention to their first couple of songs. We were like, oh, we're going to go hit the merch booth now because <laughs> it's going to be a long we line gotta be, We got to beat the old people to the merch booth. And so we go to the merch booth and it's like the saddest merch booth you've ever seen. Oh. Picture like your low budget dive bar. It's a folding table, no. the black tablecloth and two, uh, two different T-shirts hung up on the front of the table. But I will say that's how we did it back in the day. That's hey, how we did it in 05. Whatever works. And, like, at this point, you know, like, when you're asleep and in a dream, you're like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. To that point, everything had made sense. And then I see my Latin teacher from high school, and that was the moment I was like, this this is not real. (laughs) This is a dream. (laughs) I spent the entire concert talking to Mr. Woodford and not watching the concert. (laughs) So it wasn't the fact they moved it to the academy. No. (laughs) It wasn't the fact that it was randomly a high school auditorium. No. And it wasn't the fact that it was a folding table... (laughs) little merch booth nope it was when mr woodford it it was when wait a second in his high school basketball coach track jacket Uh, wait a second is this a dream so i woke up and i was like we still have my chemical romance tickets right like that was my first thought yes Um, yes we do i also had a dream on my very first night of covid in the throes of fever dreamdom i guess my brain was like don't move you're sick yeah. And my, I interpreted that in my dream as don't move. Aliens are holding you down and experimenting on you. Uh, it very much well could be. So I kept waking up and being like, oh, I can't die. And then I'd be like, I'm dying. The probe and COVID test. It was, it was a wild week of dreams. Mm. Sickness will do that to you. It but sometimes it's weird. fun. It was weird. Yeah. Don't like it. Oh, 
You gotta get on Lexapro, my friend. No. You wanna have a mishmash of all different things. COVID Some days enough. you get a dream that's written like a script, and then the other day there's not a congruence in sight. Some days at the Jelly Bean Kingdom. Some days. Some days, some days not. I'm trying to think. Like I literally had a dream last night. It was like I can't even think of it now. It, but it was like there was one thing happening, and then it completely switched to a different scenario, and then went to a different scenario. But oh, I remember it. I remember it. Way. Someone tried to adopt Mia and acts like this is her dog. And I was like, excuse me, this is not your dog. Aww. This is my dog. And then all of a sudden I was in my house back where I grew up in New York. And one of my friends is trying to like break into my house. <laughs> and then it turned into an anime like Christian super book thing. <laughs> And they literally just like Wait, your were dreams, fighting the friends. Your dreams come in different animation styles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. I switched from real life to it was to very like Cartoon Network style, and then it went into Japanese anime style. Like, like I said, if you grew up in <laughs> 1990s evangelical superbook, th- think that direction. And then, like at the end of it, like this worship song starts playing after like I don't know. It was a video game at that point, just like beating the last boss it was very strange that's wild yeah so anyway anyway i'm leah <laughs> and i'm bethann and this is shiorakio where are they getting a dub in a cbs executive meeting no bitch don't touch my thermostat <laughs> the ghost be like pull up before i haunt you let me turn down the thermostat <laughs> this is bad we're on page one guys <laughs> this is shiorakio we have business, Leah. I know we have a negative review. Not a review, an email. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. We should that. read that. Let me pull it up. Listen, we love all reviews here at She Will Rock You. If you got a positive one, we're super happy. If you got something <laughs> negative, we're also super happy because it's time to roast some bitches. All right. We're going to roast this person. And Let's go. Like, I don't even know their name because their email address makes no sense. So the subject of this email we got was... Carly Simon was born in 1943, not 1945. And can I just say, this was in our spam folder. <laughs> and at first I was like, oh, this is a weird targeted <laughs> campaign. No, it gets better. <clears throat> you need to correct this error of fact. And then they link to our webpage where the Carly Simon episode is. Birth records prove she was born in 1943. And then they hyperlink to an Ancestry.com listing that you can't see unless you have an Ancestry.com membership. So thanks. <laughs> um, but then they, they took the liberty to copy paste the birth record into the email for us. Name, Carly Simon. Birth date, 25 June 1943. Birthplace, Manhattan, New York City, New York, USA. And then they go on to say, she claims 1945, but numerous sources list her true age. And then she gives us three of those sources. Uh, They finish with her sister, Joanna, was born in 1936, but claims 1940. And her sister, Lucy, was born in 1940, but claims 1943. They're just like the Gabors, doing their best to muddle the records. Who are the No idea why she claims to be born in the Bronx, but that's a lie, too. (laughs) I just just want to take a moment (laughs) and just let you know there's a person on this earth... Carly, I hope you're listening because he's he or she is coming with you for the truth. And you, apparently you'll be exposed that you have the wrong birth year. I don't know what that means and what that means in hindsight, but apparently this is important information. 
Apparently. They Apparently. were very upset by this. Oh, well. Can't win them all, can you? <laughs> but that that's your um, in our mailbox this week. Yes. Because that was just... I laughed about it. I think I got it while I was in Alaska one day. <laughs> um, I laughed about it for a good 15 minutes. Yeah. No, it was literally just like... Because I was... You know, manning the socials, which was a big mistake. <laughs> the big meme, mistake. The memes I came back to were great. Yes. I tried to be really, I was planning on doing more memes, but I kind of like lost ideas. Yeah, it happened. So I kind of kept it a little neutral, but there were some good shit posts in there. But yeah, I was manning the inbox and I, for some reason, said, let's go check spam. And I was greatly rewarded with that email. That's about all that was in there. Good. Yeah. Well, this is episode 68 of our podcast. Which means Leah gets the coveted number. I do. Nice. Um, but this episode, it's going to go out to my father-in-law who listens to this show because he has been waiting for Pat Benatar to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I have spent many vacations when me, him, and Josh are talking about rock music, which is always super fun. And he says Pat Benatar has been robbed from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he is correct. He's 100% correct. And I am happy to report. She's going this year, right? This year, she's going. So the universe is correcting itself. Also, Dolly's going in, even though she withdrew. Even though she said no. Yeah, I don't understand. But I whatever. don't know. She deserves to be there. She but. deserves to be there. Um, But yeah, so she's going in, which is great. So, I, you know, I figured it was time to talk about her. Um, This also, to be honest with you, was a close call. Um, <laughs> Like I said, Lee had gone on vacation. And then my brain went on vacation. And then I overhyped about booking a Disney cruise after she got back from a Disney cruise. And then it just slapped me in the face that recording was this week. But that does not mean that Pat gets any less love than the rest of my trash children. Make no mistake. So this is Pat Benatar. Patricia May, and I'm going to, sorry if I butcher this, Andrzejewski, we're going with know. it. Um, was born in Brooklyn, New York on January 10th, 1953. Was she, though? Was she? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. We don't know for sure. In this episode of Exposed, Pat Benatar, we look at her records. We say 1953. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> we talked to credited people who have been on Ancestry.com to expose no, we the truth. We can't see what their site <laughs> sources they're citing. <laughs> um anyway her mom was a beautician and her dad worked in like cheap metal factory growing up she had always taken an interest in singing in theater um but then you know like all of us including Leah and I at some point in comes high school slash college sweetheart that sweeps us off our dumbass 18 year old feet <laughs> um not saying marriage derails goals but if you're not conscious and focused it could. It could. It could. But anyway, at first, she was going to go train at Jul- Juilliard because she is operatically trained, which is pretty cool. Um, but then, you know, the reasonable side went out and said, no, go to Stony Brook. Get a public health education. She stayed for one year. And the schoolyard bell got replaced with wedding bells. Ooh. And she married a Dennis Benatar. There's a dentist, Benatar, and I was like, that's a weird name. Dennis. Dennis. <laughs> my little lisp caught it. Um, in an interview, Pat said the inspiration for this marriage was, quote, 
he got drafted to Vietnam and I thought he was going to die. So like an idiot, I got married. That is the inspiration for a lot of marriages yes. around this time. Yes. Well, welcome to 1970s. Um, let me guess what this was. Dennis is in the army army shortly after getting married. And he's like stationed at Fort Lee. So she actually moves to Richmond. Only a stone throws away from here. That's and cool. she works as a bank teller. Weird, but okay. But her projection in life does change once she sees the great Liza Minnelli performing in Richmond. Which, why can't she perform now in Richmond? Because I would totally still go see her. she's ancient and can't travel anymore. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that is true. I'm, I'm, we sh- I wish I was around for the Liza Minnelli yeah. age for sure. But that's okay. And she said, quote, her wonderful gay friends, which I love that she added that quip because water is wet, Pat. Like where there is Liza Minnelli or Judy Garland, the LGBTQ plus community is there. They show up. Yes, they show up and saw Liza sing and said, I can do that. Bold words. So she realizes she needs to get back into music and goes and quits her job as a bank teller the next day. Maybe not the best financial decision, but props to her. No, but, eh, you know, what are you going to do? Um, her first move is she starts working as a singing waitress at a club called the Roaring Twenties in Richmond. I tried to look this up, like, where is it? And it's, like, right outside of town, but I couldn't find any other information about it. I'd be shocked if it was still open, to be honest. It's not. It was open in the 70s, and then it closed. I could only find the Richmond Dispatch, have a little mention of it, but that's it. They weren't putting that in the paper. Yeah. After that stint, she moves back to New York to grow her career. And she be- begins to take regular gigs at a comedy club called Catch a Rising Star. So one Halloween night in 1977, after entering a costume contest, she shows up on a gig dressed in her costume. The costume was for a movie called Catwoman of the Moon. I have no clue what that is, but she's wearing all spandex. Okay. And little does she know, she'll be wearing that on stage for the next 10 years. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Um. There's probably an argument to be made here that she probably ushered in the trend of the 80s because she's like, you know, she said like, you know, after she started wearing it, Madonna started wearing it and she was like super proud of it. Like she's very much from an article I read. um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but she's very pro women artists. Like, yeah, we're in this together. Mm -hmm. Like super, super awesome. She's just really awesome. Um, But anyway. A year later, she signs to Chrysalis Records, the same Blondie was on. Chrysalis. Chrysalis, thank you. <laughs> um, and also signs some divorce papers as well. Oh, shit, that was fast. Yep. Uh, bye-bye, Dennis. But she kept the last name. So that's yeah. nice. But she does find the love of her life soon afterwards, who we'll talk about in a little bit. But let's get into the first album. It's called In the Heat of the Night. What's interesting about Pat Benatar, I feel like, is she has a lot of like sleeper hits at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the when she first released her album in August 1979, it just didn't get a lot of movement. Her first single was If You Think You Know How to Love Me, a cover by a band called Smokey. And then she also has a cover by John Mellicamp <coughs> called I Need a Lover. That may be important later. <coughs> I don't know. Well, just felt like putting that in there. Felt like it was right. Just clearing my throat. Yeah, know. just clearing it out. You, you need a lozenge or... That, that COVID hangover. That, co- that COVID cough. Um, but the one that made 
the album charts was Heartbreaker. It was written by some dudes in England. So we know this because I'm sure like one, they asked them, but then two, like they had to change phrases like A to Z and Moonraker, which now makes me want the song to be like, you're a Moonraker, Cheesemaker. I don't know. Moonraker. I have no fucking clue. I'm going to Google it. I have no clue. Anyway, um, but the song is like, you know, it starts hitting for her, but not as like hard as it's going to. But in retrospect, it will show up on VH1's hardest rocking songs list. Uh, Moonraker may refer to. These are the options that Wikipedia is giving me. It's a 1955 James Bond novel, a 1979 film based on the novel so i guess it was a james bond movie at some point or the soundtrack for the film so it sounds like it's james bond okay is it a rejected bond theme you're a moonraker i doubt it that would kind of be cool though james bond moonraker moonraker rejected bond theme. moonraker finger or the spy who moonraked me so i'm along those lines um Anyway, the song did help them eventually go platinum, the album go platinum, rather, in December of 1980. And then Canada does super well. It goes like four times platinum there. Interesting. But let's segue over to her band for a little bit. I'm not going to talk about much of the members. Actually, in hindsight, I wrote about none of them, <laughs> except for Neil Giraldo. After Heartbreaker comes out, the next single she releases is called We Live for Love which is written by Neil. Um, and the song did very well in Australia, but Neil would become her future husband. And I'm happy to report they've been married for 40 years. Wow. That's cool. They are so cute together, Aww. but we'll talk more about that in the legacy section, but that's kind of a fun little tidbit. Let's move on to her second album, crimes of passion. It was released on August 5th, 1980. As far as for singles, her first song was You Better Run, which was the second music video to premiere on MTV after Video Kill the Radio radio Star. But then we know her signature song, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. I see you holding back. (laughs) Fucking that up. (laughs) Well, I was going to sing the title, but the COVID has killed the voice. I I understand. It's not going to happen. I understand. Everyone sing it in your hearts for Leah. Yes. Um. Let me give you the joy of how this song was written. The song was written by Eddie Schwartz, and it does seem like I don't think she writes as much, which Mm -hmm. is totally fine. Like, it happens quite a bit. She has a good team around her. But Eddie Schwartz, who is a Canadian writer, he's written for artists like Doobie Brothers, Donna Summer. Um, He wrote this song while attending a therapy class. And the title of that therapy class, or rather the subject, was Pillow Punching. So, like... See, this they, dude's punching a pillow and comes up with one of the most, well, he's literally punching a pillow saying, well, you're a real tough cookie. You're, you're a real tough cookie. Isn't there a scene in SpongeBob where Patrick's like, oof. Yeah. Oof. That's all I can picture. <laughs> and then he like breaks his like little paw, yes. his little fin, whatever that is. His star point. Listen, if punching a pillow is your muse, who am I to judge? Who am I? Inspiration comes from weird places. It does. But this song goes platinum alone. She also hits the top 10 charts for the first time. Most importantly, and I consider this an honor if this happens, the song is known for being an inclusion of Guitar Hero. 
like fuck what the Library of Congress's preservation process is. If your song went on Guitar Hero, like you have preserved that song well. Like if I can't hit blue, green, red, and the orange buttons, I'm not interested. I'm just not interested. Uh, but the album itself was number two for five consecutive weeks, right behind John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Double Fantasy. It would be her first platinum certification and also would um, become four times platinum. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, hey, Beth Ann, you said Heat in the Night went platinum. Well, that's because Crimes of Passion went platinum first. And then her first album, like, picked right up and went platinum right after it. So, like, if her album came out in August 1980, it was that fast of a turnaround because by October, it's platinum right away. Wow. That's pretty cool. It also went five times platinum in Canada <laughs> because for some reason, well, not for some reason. It's a good reason. Canada loves Pat Benatar. Interesting. We haven't it's had very an artist strange. that's like blown up in Canada. Yeah. It, it's not really. And that's why it's strange to me because we're used to like an artist going in the UK and blowing up from here. We're used to like a UK artist blowing up here and not there. So it's a, it's a little yeah. nice change of pace. So after Crimes of Passion was released, two more albums came out that I'm going to briefly highlight. First is Precious Time. The biggest hit off this album is Fire and Ice, which I think is an underrated song for her. It's very good. Uh, That song was in the top 20 charts in the U.S., top four in Canada, of course. While I didn't talk much about this, she does hit different, and I mean that in the music sense, in other countries. Like, she does well in France. She does well in Sweden. She does well in Australia. So she's like doing pretty well in the U.S., but I would say at times like other countries outrank us Mm -hmm. in their love for Pat Benatar. Um, This also got her her second Grammy. Her first Grammy was for um, Crimes of Passion. I forgot to add that in there. Am I missing a section? No. Okay. I just forgot to put it in there. So she got her first Grammy and then her second Grammy all in the same category Best Female Rock Vocal Performance. And then we get to her next album called Get Nervous, which was released in 1982. For some reason, I love this album art so much. And it's really like simple, but it's like such a like, it, it's like the perfect 80s cover for me. Mm-hmm. It's her in a padded room and she's like in this chic straight jacket and her hair is like, has that, you know, like a skeeter from Doug how it's kind of like a flat top flat top but it's to the side yeah so that's how our hair looks and it's just this really cool vibe um the 80s keeping hair gel and hairspray yes yes in business <laughs> probably not the best thing to do like padded rooms and straight jacket eh, there's still the jury's out whether that's probably the best way of you but i really love like the aesthetics that they put into it it's, it's really cool um this album was released in 1982 Sorry, this album was released in October of 1982. The biggest hit off this album is Shadow of the Night. It's one of those songs like you didn't know that you heard it, but then you hear it and you're like, oh, yeah, I've heard this in Macy's. Um, before, <laughs> some Walgreens core. Yeah, some Walgreens core. <laughs> um, before we talk about this song's success, I got to talk about the music video. So it's 1982. M2V has been around for like a solid year year-ish and I would just love to know what went on in those boardrooms with like record labels because they have to like they want to be on this hot new trend of music videos because only a couple of artists pioneered it up to that point Mm -hmm. 
and something hits them. Wait, we don't have to just film them performing. We can do whatever we want. So there's like this era of 80s music videos. And this outline has really opened my eyes to it where it doesn't have to make much sense. Um, See, dancing in the street with Mick yes, Jagger. <laughs> it doesn't have to make any sense. Here's a million dollars. Go crazy. And literally the team behind this song, which the song is clearly Shadows of the Night, running away with your lover, you know, in the pa- giving into passion kind of thing. Um, the team goes, hmm, Shadows of the Night. You know what this reminds me of? Please say World vampires. War Two. No, that's not where I thought this was going. That's what this reminds me of. Wh- what? So the whole music video, which I do like the message behind it. I think the messages behind her music videos are powerful. It's just the application is just very <laughs> 80s. It's just dated is all it is. Yeah. Nothing wrong with it. Just dated. And we look back in hindsight. And we're like, oh, that's kind of funny. Um, But how it starts off is Pat is in a Rosie Riveter outfit dreaming of being a pilot. Like she's working at the rivet machine and she looks up at a poster with a plane on it. And then she starts daydreaming about becoming a pilot. And one of the people next to her is the stepdad from the Santa Claus, <laughs> the Tim Allen movie, which funny story. Cause I started watching that when I was like, I don't know, six or something like that. I forever, like for 10 years, Thought that's how you spelled Santa Claus, like Claus with an E. That's fair, but it's a double entendre. Yeah, it's because it's a clause and a contract. Yeah, clause a contract. They should have made that more clear. I'm just saying. Doesn't he for five year olds sign a contract? The hell am I supposed to know what a clause is at five years, six years old? I I don't know. But anyway, um, so they and a few others go fly to Germany to lie dynamite in this Nazi headquarter. And then they dramatically get caught when one of the, you know, higher ups is making out with a girl and they make it to their ship just in time. And then they start shooting down all these Nazi planes. And the team is like, what with their little top gun come out? Because this feels like <laughs> this is inspired. It by may have been. It, this is 1982. I'm like, Google there, there, there may be some inspiration there. Um, and then like the building blows up dramatically. Oh. Top Gun's 1986. So oh, they so were they're, first. they're pioneering it. They're pioneering it. Tom Cruise wishes. Yeah. So anyway, that's the music video. And then, you know, she wakes up and she's in a daydream, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the accolades for this album and song, the song did super well in the charts and I'm sure MTV as well. Um, it also snagged her her third female rock vocal performance um, because for Grammys, there's only one category women are allowed to be in for rock, apparently. But anyway, um, her other hits from the album are Little Too Late and Looking for a Stranger. The album itself did secure her a Platinum RIAA certification. Um, this album, though, didn't do as well in other countries. It definitely did better in America. But let's move on to the song you're also probably waiting for. Because she's really known for three. Uh, well, that's kind of cheating out. She has a lot of great songs. But those signature songs is Heartbreaker, uh, Hit Me With Your Best Shot, and Love is a Battlefield. Mm-hmm. So if we were to put her albums on a timeline, before MTV, she's hard rock. And Heartbreaker is a super heavy song, and you cannot tell me otherwise. Then MTV comes out. She's still rock. During Get Nervous, it's more of a transitional album, moving her more into like a pop rock direction. 
Um, I mean, Shadows of Night features synth, Moog, most likely, as well as some guitar. Moog. I'm never going to say it right. You cannot convince me. Moog. It will be Moog. I am emotionally and spiritually We're attached. attached to the Moog. So that's just the way it is. Uh, but then Love is a Battlefield is definitely going in just a pop, slight rock direction. Um, not saying there's really anything wrong with that. For my personal feelings, like, you know, I tend to just, as an emo, hardcore kid at heart, it's kind of like, eh, you know? But that's okay. You don't have to care. Like, my opinions don't matter. Uh-huh. An artist can do whatever the hell they want. Um, but, you know, you definitely can't ignore that, like, MTV did have an impact, especially not only on music, but, like, the accompanying videos are being played. Mm-hmm. Like, that much is true. So, Love is a Battlefield is this interesting song as far as for recording. It was recorded um, in a studio, so it's a studio song, but it didn't make its first appearance until a live album called Live from Earth. Hmm. Um, when the music video comes out, it's just a single. And the single just blows up. The song alone sold a million copies. It placed number five on the Billboard 100. It remained on the rock charts for four weeks. VH1 has it ranked as number 30 on their 100 Greatest Songs. And of course, it wins for her fourth best female, say it with me, rock vocal, vocal female performance. Female rock vocal performance. Female rock vocal performance, exactly. I just also appreciate the person on Wiki who went out of their way to tell me that the tempo of the song is 90.691 beats per minute. That's very specific. In case you needed to know that. Like when you're on Jeopardy someday. Or even try and beer trivia. It's so your Peloton instructor can yell it out. You know, the, the beat of the music is 90.163, <laughs> whatever, if you want to ride at that. That's funny. Um, but I hope you came here for another music video synopsis. Because I got another one for you. Welcome to the 80s. Yeah. This one makes a little bit more sense. And like I said, the messaging is there. Application is so 80s. It's just a time capsule. So the story goes, it starts off with her on a bus. And then it's showing her life kind of thing while she's on the bus. And it starts off with her getting kicked out of her house. And then she goes to New York. She works as a taxi dancer, which you know I read that as taxi driver, Leah. And I was very confused when I was watching this music video. What is a taxi dancer? A taxi dancer is someone who gets paid to dance with people. I've never heard that term before. I'm just trying. I've to never like, heard it either. That's why when I, uh, you know, naturally I read Taxi Driver and I watched music video. I was like, I don't see a damn taxi in this. When you said taxi dancer, I pictured her wearing like a mini dress that like looked like a taxi. <laughs> Complete with like checkered high <laughs> knee high socks. That's where my brain went. With a little wheel. yeah. Love is a yeah. That's yeah. my picture. <laughs> so yeah, they're all of a sudden in like this CD nightclub thing, and women are getting paid to dance with these you know fugly men. <laughs> and then one of her dancing friends is being assaulted by this dude. So the girls all corner him to show him, hey, don't fuck around with my friend. And then they start doing a choreographed dance, starting with this like titty shimmying towards the guy. And he's just like the whole time, like, what's going on? No man is going to be scared of boobs. Come on. That'll show him. (laughs) (laughs) Unrealistic. And so the dance was choreographed by the guy behind Thriller. So that kind of makes sense. Yeah. The girls all run out and they're free from being taxi dancers. 
So that's that music video. After this song, um, she does go on to release an album called Tropico, um, which has We Belong, which is also a pretty well-known uh, I forget song that's her. for her. Yeah. Um, this album, I would say, is her full transition to pop. And she loves that album, too. Um, I was reading an interview from Spin, which we'll talk more in a little bit. But she's like, Tropico is a really good album because I actually like did something different. Um, and this time, We Belong was nominated for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. Ooh, such a change. Different. I'm going to skip ahead here um, just because we're following like the old pattern of release an album. Go it, on tour. It charts. It goes on tour. Make a video. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm going to move to the year 1993. So we're jumping from like 1984 to 1993. So by this time, she has released Tropico, Seven the Hard Way, which is her sixth album. And that annoys me. Um, that why is, do, that, doesn't it annoy you? That is interesting. I expect it to be the seventh album. Interesting choice. Um, Wide Awake in Dreamland and True Love. And up to the point, um, I think it's when Seven the Hard Way is like her last like, like platinum album, charting album. And then Wide Awake in Dreamland didn't really go very far and neither did True Love. But her next release at this point is called Gravity Rainbow. And that's going to be her last album with Chrysalis. Chrysalis? Chrysalis. Chrysalis Records. Because up to this point, like, after, like I said, Seven the Hard Way, her music's just not selling the way it used to, which is the totally... The 80s are over. The 80s are over. And that's totally to be expected after you've been in for, like, a decade. Yeah. You know, th- that's just what happens. So her last album, True Love, um, only sold 350,000 copies and only 50,000 in Canada. And it also was a blues album, which in hindsight, maybe that jump wasn't the best. Mm-hmm. But I also respect her for trying something different because she is very big on that. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to be afraid of trying something. Um, I, I'm going to paraphrase her quote, but like she just doesn't want to stay locked in one category and wonder what if I did that. Yeah. So I, I totally understand that. Uh, so for this next album, they kind of reinvent her look like. If you look at the cover art or look at some of the singles art, it reminds me of 90s Animal Kingdom vibes. Like if you took Disney's Animal Kingdom and just like put it in a time machine from 2001 to 1993, that's what it would look like. I know exactly what that looks like. You, I knew you <laughs> would catch it. It's so niche, but I knew you'd catch it. <laughs> um, the album didn't do well because there was a shuffle between label mergers because Chrysalis was being bought out by EMI. And um, in that transition, she recorded a music video for her song, Every Time I Fall Back. She also was pregnant at the time with her second child. So the label did two things. One, the music video got lost in the transla- transition. So that was never found. And then she was pregnant and they're pretty much like, sorry, we're not going to promote you. <laughs> have this kid and come yeah, back Yeah, have later. this kid and come back. And then so it only sells 166,000 copies. Which is totally the record label's fault. Yeah. 100%. So after this album, she releases two more albums, Inamorata and Go. And Go would be her last album in 2003. Um, which is a really, like, fun album cover. Because it has, remember that winged eyeshadow mm-hmm. that we all used to do? And, like, the O is her mouth and, like, Go. A very 2000s Chrome look. Mm-hmm. Chrome look. Um, but before we get to legacy, I w- let's get into the article spin because I am citing it quite a few times. And luckily, they re- re-released it for us 
it's an article from 1985, but re-released in the fact that she's going to get nominated soon. This was right before the release of Seven the Hard Way. So when she's really at this big pinnacle in her career. Mm -hmm. She's, um, so admittedly, like, there's not a lot of information on Pat, but this is a really great article because I think this really gives a glimpse into her personality, which is interesting for as long as she's been around. There's really, like, not much that shows us who she is. Mm -hmm. You know, you just kind of know her story and then her music. It's kind of like Dolly. She's it, it's, very private. Yeah, it kind of you just kind of keep it in, which is totally fine. That's her decision. Um, but yeah, I love her personality now. I like this spin article really shows it. Um, so first, let me tell you the tone of this article. Here's the opening paragraph, and this is written by Lydia Lunch. She's the one who did the interview. And let me tell you, good God, I can hear the punk from miles slash decades away. <laughs> and this is how it starts: ballsy gutsy bitchy one heart rockin mama right the little girl with the big big mouth the girl who invented black tights and short shorts the wet dream of every honest hard-working beer guzzling god-fearing red-blooded normal white male this side of the rio grand river huh folks give me a break assholes let's start a scratch and work our way back Pat Benatar began her career as a singing waitress in the New York City comedy club Catch a Rising Star. She was conveniently discovered by a proprietor who went on to become her manager, just like in the movies. Only I never go to see those kinds of movies. And I never won six Grammys, didn't have six consecutive platinum albums or sell 20 million copies of anything. Thank God I never made one rock music video. <laughs> Pat Benatar has 13 and we're still counting. She's beginning her first tour in three years has a new LP, Seven the Hard Way, and finally proved herself, proved in quotations, winning more freedom than ever just to be herself. That's, that's... It's a lot. That's a good intro. It's a great intro, but you can hear the punk in it. Yeah. I love it. And then let me grab you some pull quotes from Pat, because the rest of the article is just her, her talking. Yeah. Um, quote, and this is completely out of context. I don't have time to get into the context of it. So here's one of them. Quote, I was never afraid of rapists. If I bit them, they die blood everywhere. How hard <laughs> are you biting these men? I, literally, I was just like, one, you go, Pat. But two, what's the scenario? <laughs> but what two, have you gone through in New York? Uh, have you murdered someone? But look, we don't need to ask questions. I, I trust her judgment. I mean, I trust her judgment. Death to rapists. Yeah. And then her second quote, this is this is her talking about like cheering Madonna on because Madonna's coming on the scene. Mm -hmm. And this is in context of people asking, you know, well, what about Madonna? And she said, and you go, well, what about her? I taught her how to wear fucking tights, man. Let her do it for herself. Yeah. I love it. She defends women. But lastly, and we got to talk about it. Let's talk about the sexism she faced because guess what? She faced quite a bit. Really? From the Grammys? Yeah. <laughs> she said in the interview that she would receive death threats and bomb threats because she was just a woman on stage. She said, quote, we get a lot of that. And being a woman, you ha you've got the anatomy that invites trouble. So it's pretty scary. And then one day um, she said she was at a recording company and this one guy turned to her and said, you don't really think they come to hear you sing, do you? That was uncalled for, sir. Yeah. And then, like, whenever, like, people started focusing on, like, other singers, she's like, 
well, maybe people won't look at the color of my panties and actually concentrate on my singing. <laughs> like, there is a lot of sexism happening to the first woman who pioneered rock. And you just got to wonder why she just got regulated to best female rock vocal performance instead of actually hearing her music and actually maybe nominating her in a different category. I'm not saying that's a bad category, but when historically you look at all the rock categories, especially in the 70s and 80s, when there was a lot more there is today. Yeah. And you only put women in one category for their female rock vocal performance. Well, now we don't even have that category. No. And then I nominate females. So yeah, we're screwed either way. Yeah. You know, so anyway, so after 24 years of releasing albums, so 2003 is her last album and her and Neil occasionally put out singles together and let's talk about them. So Neil started out as her lead guitarist, and one of her songwriters. But as their marriage and career continued, they really became like partners in the whole songwriting process. And like, that's really beautiful because they still love each other very much mm-hmm. to this day. And in fact, if you go to Pat Benantar's website, it's for her and Neil. Cute. Like normally, you know, the whole couple Facebook thing. Eh, but like, it's just so adorable to see how much like, she sees him as part of the process because mm-hmm. he's been there and not in like a, you know, I need this guy to stand by me, you know, kind of, you know, misogynist BS. Like they, she, she truly is like, this is my partner. Yeah. We did this together. And I just think that's so beautiful. So when they're getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, her husband's getting inducted alongside Aww. of her. I just love it so much. But yeah, Pat, Pat Benatar is a super interesting story. She's got a killer voice, has some great hard rock songs and she was not afraid to try different things you know i can totally understand the argument of well she went pop and i get that like it does kind of suck when you have one of your favorite artists kind of switch genre but also it was the 80s so like it was also the 80s didn't everybody and you gotta kind of go where the money is yeah because if you want a long career i'm sorry you gotta adapt and i do understand that um so you know but i applaud her for you know looking for those opportunities to branch out so that's pat benatar that's a good one. Yeah, she's, I knew she's nothing fun. about her. I didn't know much about her either. Thanks for listening. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods. A special thanks to Death the Fawn for our intro riff. You can visit our website at shewillrockyou.com. There you'll find our socials, show notes, ways to contact us, and links to our merch. And remember, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. It's 1943, and Pat Benatar has a dream. In the height of World War II, she wants to take to the skies as one of America's first female military pilots. Along the way, she builds long-lasting friendships with cadets in the base. And, oh yeah, bombs the fuck out of some Nazis. Chrysalis Records presents a story of valor, dynamite, and killing goddamn Nazis in... The Shadows of the Night! Get ready for the most patriotic and explosive music video of your life. Tune into your local MTV channel to watch this ridiculous million-dollar five-minute short film.
Special thanks to friend of the pod, Thomas Carter Rochester. Be sure to check out his podcast. One is a movie-centered podcast called Lights Under Action, and the other is a Star Wars podcast called Reckless Rebellion.